Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Smart People Podcast. I'm John Rojas. And I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks for tuning in. This episode was really cool. Actually, we found somebody out there who has a job that both John and I, if you could combine our interests, that's what our title would be. It's like if you could combine psychology and technology. And sure enough, they have a field out there called media psychology, which Makes is exact, sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it's exactly that. So this week we speak with Dr. Pamela Rutledge. She is the director of the Media Psychology Research Center, which is a not-for-profit organization specializing in media psychology. She has a background in media communication, business management, and psychology. She's also the co-founder of a company called A Think Lab, which is a consulting group. We get into that a little bit in the interview. She has her MBA, her master's, and her PhD. Both of those last ones are in psychology. So it's an interesting conversation. We get to learn about how humans interact with technology in general, how it affects our daily lives. Everybody knows about it and it's there, but we don't quite quite grasp how it's changed us and our psychology and the way we think about things. Um, I know Roach, you kind of nerded out a little bit and enjoyed talking to her a little too much, had a lot of questions. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely loved the interview. I told her, you know, I could sit here for, for hours and talk to her because like you said, this is stuff that completely interests me. I can't wake up in the morning without checking my iPhone, seeing what's going on on Twitter, on Facebook, seeing what people are doing, seeing what that early, you know, breaking news is before starting my day. And, and you remember you remember how you actually asked her for a job? You oh, remember that part? Okay. A- absolutely. I just cuz that was a first for the podcast. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I asked her, you know, what does it take to work for you? How do I apply? How do I get a job? Her response was basically you don't. So, you know, whatever. You yeah. win some, you lose some. I also think it's interesting how you and I, you know, we've been friends for a long time and we're Uh, the same age and grew up in the same place, we kind of perceive technology completely differently. I mean, I just got an iPhone recently. I pretty much use it to like do my fantasy lineup, to check some email and back in my single days, maybe to stalk women on Facebook. But aside from that, I I don't do too much with it. You kind of different approach. Yeah, I'd agree. I think to simplify it, you probably look at it as a hassle and I look at it as something that's like a, a lifeline, like water or air. <laughs> so anyways, it was fun in this interview to, to hear what a professional has to say about how we interact with this technology, how it's changed us. And you kind of learn a lot about the way that humans go about things now differently from five years ago, five months ago. But I know, Roach, we were talking earlier. You had something you kind of wanted to uh, to get off your chest. Why don't you tell our listeners? Oh, absolutely. My goal for our Twitter feed was to to build a community around our listeners, get everybody involved and having them, you know, starting conversations with us on a daily basis, telling us who they wanted to hear from, what they wanted to talk about and, and so on. 
not only did I want to build a community, but I kind of wanted to have everybody start like a, a grassroots marketing campaign for us. I mean, as you know, our marketing budget is zero dollars. That's not just our marketing, but that is our budget. Yeah, our, our salaries, everything. <laughs> Absolutely. But what I was kind of hoping for was, you know, through Twitter, having people repost our stuff. So even if you have 50 followers, anytime that you put something out there on Twitter and you say, hey, check out Smart People Pod, check out their podcasts, follow them on Twitter. If you can get one or two people to do that and those one or two people can get, you know, some of their friends to do it, we can slowly grow this community and have you know a, a pretty big following which will end up helping us in the long run and and one thing i wanted to add in there was if you're listening to the podcast you're you're a like-minded person i mean you're doing it only to learn you have 20 minutes you know to kill and you you might want to pick up a new little tidbit of information you know, want to learn about a new industry some you know something that sparks your interest everyone that downloads this that is their idea so on twitter we want to connect and unite these these ideas i mean have you read an interesting article tag at smart people pod in it or do you just have an interesting thought are you thinking about a book Did, are you thinking about creating a business like we kind of want to encourage that and then we'll we'll give our feedback and even a lot of the people that we interview they end up following us so they might see it they might be able to give some input so we kind of want to start the the group around that and our goal and i will say john was is quite He's, he's serious about this. We want to have a thousand followers by the end of 2011. I think that's reachable considering how many people have a thousand followers. So jump on, join in and, and let's get this conversation going. All right. So enough of this Twitter talk between Chris and I, we're going to go ahead and listen to what Pamela Rutledge has to say with Twitter, other technologies are out there and how we interact with them as human beings. Enjoy the interview. First, Dr. Rutledge, I wanted to ask you, and we asked most of our guests, just a general overview of kind of what it is that you do and, and how you got to this point. I know you have an MBA and a PhD and all those things. So kind of what got you to where you are? I started in communications and in graphic design and corporate communications, educational uh, materials and what really interested me about that was how people were perceiving this information because especially with like college recruiting materials what you're trying to do is give someone a sense of what it's like to attend that college so I was really interested in how people were interpreting the information and you know if you put interviews with other students would that make it more relatable and more personal for them so, so I was really thinking about that a lot and then decided since I had my own business, I should go learn uh, some management accounting kinds of things because it seemed like a good idea. And, and during the business program, I had a great opportunity partly to work with Peter Drucker, which was uh, amazing, and partly to start to see how all of these decisions within an organization influence behavior, how everything from who pays for the cost of the pencils to the where the CEO parks to the kind of language that he uses or she uses. Uh, so all of these things really influence behavior all the way down. So I thought, well, shoot, you know, what I really want to know is psychology, which is how I ended up uh, doing the PhD in psychology and then brought it back to the communications and the media. 
So I'm a PhD in psychology. I have done some clinical work, but I don't do clinical work now. But I, my expertise is the area of media, and I'm particularly interested in social media, emerging technologies, and, and the impact of that. Can you go ahead and define to our listeners who might not be aware of what media psychology is and, and you know, like how can we actually begin to define that? Well, that's an interesting question because there's there's certainly a lot of different opinions about that. And I think part of the reason is that just the word media and psychology, they both have a lot of baggage that come with them. So if you talk about the media, people immediately associate that with mass media. They don't stop and think about computer interfaces or technology or, or even social networking. So you're sort of working against that stereotype. And the same with psychology to some degree is that when you, when you tell people you're a psychologist, they go, oh, are you going to like, you know, figure out how crazy I am? So they presume that it's a clinical thing. So a lot of people, when you say I'm a media psychologist, they make that equation and it's like, well, are you like Dr. Phil or, you know, Dr. Drew, you know, or do you a psychologist that appears in the media? And to me, that's exactly that's really not what a media psychologist is immediate any more than a guy who goes on a talk show and he's a plumber would be a media plumber. To me, a media psychologist is someone who uses this incredibly interesting toolbox of, you know, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, uh, social psychology, positive psychology, and uses that as a lens to look at the way people interact with technology and media. And I define media very broadly. So to me, media is any kind of mediated communication. It's funny because before we called, John said, he said, I don't quite get why it's called media psychology. Why isn't it called technology psychology? And I, I guess that is the reason, as you were saying, it's more how humans interact with it. Is that is that why? Yes. I mean, and I think, you know, why is it called media psychology? Because like we kind of inherited that name and there really isn't a good word to use that's all encompassing things are changing so quickly but if we said technology psychology then people would assume we're not talking about the vast amounts of mass media and we're really talking about how that all works and for me i come at this from a very systems point of view to me we're just part of this great cycle and so we're now all producers we're consumers we're distributors and everything we do in there influences some part of that system. Uh, I, hmm. I now wish that we had hours to talk to you because this is, this is the type of stuff that I have a, a huge interest in, especially when you're talking about, you know, we're all consumers, but not only that, we on Twitter and Facebook kind of affect the brands where they're no longer advertising directly to us. They're advertising, you know, with and through us. Um, with you know all the dialogue back and forth between companies on Twitter and Facebook, it's amazing how much it's changed since things being pushed down to us. Right. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that the companies who don't get that are the ones running into trouble in this new environment. Um, for me, all of this new connectivity, this network society has really caused a shift in psychology in really fundamental ways, the psychology of the audience, both as a group and as individuals. And, you know, one is that what you're talking about, which is people are very sensitive to this idea of being sold something. Right? They, they're really looking for transparency and authenticity because it's so easy to triangulate information and find out 
you don't have to trust the first price or the first story or the first anything. There's all kinds of ways to check on the validity of the information that you're getting. So people expect you to know that and to behave accordingly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you email someone and you don't hear back from them in the 24 hours, you're thinking, what is the matter with this person? I can't <laughs> count on them. Yeah. Or but the same with a business. If you if you complain to a business that you have a problem, you don't want to hear a week from Thursday. You I just went through this long thing with Sears and and you know, my intention is to sort of write that up comparing it to to Zappos because both people on the phone were very nice, but Tony Shea understands that you have to empower your people to actually get something done for the customer, not just keep apologizing for the inconvenience. You know, it's crazy you mentioned that. I don't know if you're aware, but do you know we interviewed Tony Shea a couple of weeks ago? Oh, cool. Yeah, I'd really like to meet him. He, uh, it's, it's cool the way he's setting the standard for this new culture of, I mean, I guess you can call it social entrepreneurship. To me, the idea is that in a, a byproduct, of this psychological shift is that the key word is respect. People expect to be respected in every way that that could mean. That's a great point. And I was going to ask kind of, as like you were saying, we, res- we, we expect responses sooner and things like that. Do you think that is actually a negative? Are we becoming more impatient in the way we deal with everything because of the instantaneous nature of technology? First of all, let me just say my my bias is that I see positive in almost all of this stuff. I don't see why it should be a negative to get information faster. Can you imagine how much Leonardo da Vinci would have gotten done if he hadn't had to walk to the library? <laughs> Right. If you'd been able to Google stuff and get information, why should we be pining for time that makes us less effective? I think that the problem is when we don't have balance, but that's not a new problem. I mean, they didn't invent type A personality last week. Right. They invented it in the management literature back in the 40s and 50s. So balance has been an issue for a long time. And I think that's the key to anything. It's crazy. John and I talk a lot about how even our parents, I feel like in the working world now, I I was doing commercial real estate. I got more done in one day than I feel like 20 years ago, somebody did in probably two weeks. And it's crazy to think that because you wonder, you know, how much is that benefiting society? Have things changed that much? It's just an interesting concept. Well, it is an interesting concept. And I think you, you raise a really good point. I think it does benefit society, but when change happens very quickly, it creates cognitive dissonance. So it's harder for some people to adjust because they don't want to. It's, it's work. In other words, to rewire your brain, we can learn right up till the day that the cells stop functioning, but it requires work. You know, the, expen- the expenditure of energy to change how we think. And so you have to be willing to embrace change. And some people aren't, you know, don't want to have to work that hard. They don't want to have to learn how to use a new remote. They don't care that it does other things. They just don't want to have to learn something new. And so I think that's where you get conflict is between people who are finding all this change exciting and people who find it a a burden. Do you see that there's a big, um, I guess, gap in between the different generations, you know, the generation Xers, Yers, the baby boomers, 
and then the millennials. As a millennial, we all look to socially collaborate using different technologies that are out there. Whereas people who are in, you know, higher positions right now might not do that and might do their work in a different fashion. Well, I think there, there is a difference because as we live, right, we take that information in and that's how we build our personal database about how the world works, right? And because you don't want to get up every morning and wonder, can you breathe? You have to take some assumptions for granted so that you can go about your day. Right. So, you know, I, somebody once said that the reason that entrepreneurs are so young is that they don't have to unlearn all the stuff the older guys do because they need to think about it differently. So yes, there's a difference in the assumptions about how the world works. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can't look for them and embrace them. It just, you have to be aware of your bias. And so I'm, I have a problem with a lot of the research on different media technologies that gets done. For example, like gaming research, when it's done by someone who's never played a video game. Right, because you, you are asking a question based upon your own metaphor bank, not the one of the gamer. So it, you're not going to ask the same question. And you can get almost any response you want based upon how you ask the question. Do you see that we're starting to move away from those biases, though, as you know, these technologies start coming into our lives exponentially faster? People are, are more accepting of email and the Twitter and the Facebook and all those different media technologies, do you see that, that's, that those biases are starting to go away or do you think those biases will always be there? Uh, no, I think, I think they'll go away and they'll be replaced you know, by the new biases because whoever's behind the millennials is going to have a different set of technologies that they think are normal. Um, you know, a friend of mine has a, a teenage son who likes to play games and she was talking with him about you know what happens when augmented reality starts bringing the game world sort of visually out into the real world where that's where there's that blend and and he was like well gosh you know i don't know that people would be able to tell that it's fantasy then because we know that it's fantasy in this format so he's already got a built-in bias about you know what someone else might not be able to tell was you know, wasn't real. I've never even looked at it or even thought about it like that. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. Um, yes, and what he's like, you know, he's like 18, you know? So, so I think that, I mean, for me, what I try and do is I try and think, you know, I mean, my mantra, it's not about the tools. It's about what human beings are trying to get done. And, one, and if you think about any kind of connection that you, or goal that you have, you think, what am I trying to get done? And how can technology facilitate that? So I think if that's where we are now, I think now that we've gotten like the shiny penny period of social media is over, because mm -hmm. now you see people, oh, we have to have a social media campaign. So quick, you know, let's get a Facebook page. Let's <laughs> open a Twitter account. Let's, you know, oops, sorry, I was waving my arms. It gets my dog excited. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's do all of that stuff without thinking, what are we trying to do? And which ones of these tools, all, none, whatever makes sense for the goal. Yeah. So I think people will now step back. I, I think it's funny that you mentioned that because um, being active on Twitter, I definitely do see those companies that say, oh, 
hot issue is Twitter right now. We need to be on here, but don't really know how, you know, don't know why they're on there. They don't realize that they're supposed to be engaging with their, basically their niche out there. And then you see other companies like Gatorade who truly gets it and they, they build a community around their consumers. Well, I mean, you know, when we all have to start and learn sometime, I mean, well, I went on Twitter and, you know, it was like, okay, everybody says, you, you know, we've got to have a lot of followers, right? And so you're just following and, you know, carrying on like that. And I have a Twitter feed now that's just useless. There is so much junk on it because it was all part of, you know, there were all those yep. apps, you know, you, you follow this one, they follow you, you know, all of that stuff, because somehow you needed to have the clout from a lot of followers without stopping to think about the quality of the content, so when I went to South by Southwest, I fired up a Twitter account for a, a new business, a Think Lab, so that I could control the information that I was getting. You know, actually, that's a good lead-in because I wanted to ask you. I know you co-founded a company called a Think Lab, and I was doing a little research, and it's really interesting. Many people might not have heard of it. Could you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about what you do there and why you you decided to create this company? Uh, sure. Well, uh, my partner Bonnie Buckner and I. Uh, our our big passion is, is we call it learning to see. Um, Leonardo da Vinci. Someone once asked him, "Why? How are you so such a good artist?" And he said, "The secret isn't the drawing. The secret is learning how to see." And so it sort of goes back to that. It's not about the tools. Is that we have a number of workshops in another, you know, and work with companies in consulting or projects or even just speaking, to help them sort of step out of the normal way of that they're approaching things. So we work with people on, for example, transmedia storytelling with the idea of getting them to think about the world in a integrated, coherent, 360 degree way. We really try and focus on the fundamentals of what people are trying to do so that they can operationalize that vision. So creativity, innovation, storytelling, finding your story. And we try and make it understandable, very experientially because Humans have layers in their brains, conscious, unconscious, lizard, mammalian, you know, all of those parts, and you want to engage them all. This is going to be, you know, a super broad question, but what are you most excited about right now in terms of where we're going with these technologies in the workplace and just what we have at our disposal? One of the things that I think is incredibly exciting is that all of this technology is creating this convergence, right? I mean, we're, the lines are really being blurred between producers and consumers, between one technology and another, and, you know, fairly soon between the technology and reality as, as these things, you know, alternate reality games where people bring gameplay out into the public. So all of this stuff really argues that companies are going to, and when well, individuals are, st are going to start needing more coherent marketing messages. In order to have a more coherent marketing message, you really need to craft a narrative because otherwise you won't get anyone's attention. Jingles are out, right? Who cares? So by creating a narrative, it means you also are going to have to elevate your sights a little bit because a narrative isn't about my soap will get your clothes clean. A narrative is about making the world more hygienic or safer or cleaner or uh, or something like that. And in this climate, and I think largely due to the millennials, there's a new social conscience that 
you know, in the sort of Tom's shoes kind of way or the, the Zappos kind of way, which is, yeah, we're going to make profit, but we're going to make profit in a socially responsible way. And so this is a great opportunity as these companies are trying to figure out how to reach the audience and be heard with all of this digital noise. It means you have to be able to engage people. It also means you have to elevate it to some universal principle. Um, I don't know if you guys saw well, maybe a month and a half ago, I'm not really sure, Downey did this big thing where they put a comedian in Macy's store on a bed and he was going to sleep there for a week. I did. Did you see that? that? I yeah. did, yeah. Okay, and you could watch him on a live feed, although every time I went, he wasn't there. But so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, okay, so what are they doing? You know, what's what's the bigger story here? Well, you know, they had a lady come in and explain to him the chemical composition of like downy fabric sheets. Okay, right? So here's a guy, talented guy, sleeping in a window. So you go and you look and then you're done, right? They so missed an opportunity. Why did they not say... Downey is about having a great place to sleep. Let's think about the people who don't have a great place to sleep, right? Click this button, you know, blah, 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 and we'll, you know, create beds for people who are homeless or kids who don't have good, you know, stuff. I mean, uh, it was yeah. just... It was just such, you had all these people sort of interested because of the, you know, bizarreness of having a guy sleeping in a window, and they did nothing with it. So they had those people for a second. They could have done all kinds of things that would have let those people feel engaged in their community, that would have caused the Downey name to have a much longer shelf life in their consciousness, and would have actually done some good. And instead, they're just like talking about what makes fabric softener work. Now, do you think that a, a company has to do you know something like that and tie in the social good? For example, oh, who was it? Chris, who makes the soap and has the guy that was the uh, oh Old Spice, Old Spice. That... Where the, oh. <laughs> the, those, I knew where you were going with that. <laughs> those, those Old Spice commercials, but there's probably a great amount of people that didn't realize that he went on to do YouTube videos where he was responding personally to people who would tweet him on Twitter or comment on YouTube videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And he would make personalized videos for these people where, you know, it was almost like a 30 second commercial using your Twitter handle or using your YouTube name. And he must have put out 150, 200 videos the first two days. And people were, were losing their mind on the internet that this guy that everybody thought was so funny was engaging their potential customers. So, but in that sense, they didn't, they didn't use the opportunity to, you know, do something good, but they still use that opportunity to engage their customers and kind of, I guess, create that relationship. Right. And, you know, and it depends on what you're defining as good. If you make somebody laugh, it actually affects the rest of their day chemically. If you, you know, uh, happiness is contagious and it, you know, and they've they've actually done some studies across networks to show how it actually spreads. So we don't always have to be giving away a pair of shoes for a pair of shoes that you buy, but you need to be giving something of positive value. You know, sometimes that's humor. But, you know, I mean, at least they did develop a sort of narrative. The question is now, how can they take that and roll that forward? Right. I've been sort of surprised that they, that Mr. Clean hasn't developed a story world. <laughs> I mean, you there's know, a perfect opportunity. 
I just I just got this thought when John mentioned YouTube. I was watching TV yesterday. I'm not I'm not one of those people that goes on YouTube that often. I don't use Twitter that often. I actually rely on John for a lot of that, <laughs> especially with our podcast and everything. But I was watching TV and apparently there's this YouTube video about kind of a rant that a student from UCLA goes on mm. um, regarding I don't I don't even know. It's something about in a library she was being racist or something. Yeah, she was bashing Asians, which was in doubly oh. bad taste. Okay. And then so this is a perfect question, seeing how you have a psychology background. The newscaster who was saying this was saying that because of things like YouTube, kids don't go home anymore and just complain to their roommates or something like that. They go on the internet and feel that not only do they need to share it, but they have the right to be heard by all these people. And even sometimes they feel like um, they can gain from it, even though it's it's actually kind of destructive in some sense. And I know, like you said, you see the good in all this. And I, I there is more good in all this than bad. But I kind of want to get your opinion on that. Well, in the case of that young woman, my understanding is she actually withdrew from school. So yes. I don't think she got the good out of that. Um, I think when you drive a car, they don't just hand you the keys. They make you practice. <laughs> you know, there are rules on the road. There are things you're supposed to do. Um, I don't know if anyone you know, ever told you never talk in an elevator when you're going to a business meeting. Right. It's yep. exactly the same thing. So I think the idea that people want and expect to be heard is very positive. I mean, that's why the fruit vendor in Tunisia was able to turn that one act into essentially a revolution because people expected and wanted and demanded to be heard. So that's very positive. It doesn't mean you can just go out there and ignore the structure of the network, right? It's searchable. It's permanent. It's connected. So you have to use, you know, with the rules and some wisdom about it the same way you don't put your phone number on the back of your car when you drive around. I mean, you know, and that seems ridiculous, but... Why? How is it any different? So I think you have to ask yourself, is this something that I want to represent me permanently in front of all of these people that I don't know? Yeah, because it's not it's not going away. Once once that's posted to the Internet, that's cemented forever. Right. And, and as far as I know, the only way to get stuff like that to not come up in a Google search is to actually then produce so much more stuff that it buries it down so many pages people don't see it anymore. And that's right. a lot of work. A lot of keywords going down for that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard enough to get, you know, to optimize that, to get your site to come up, you know, as the first uh, search on Google as it is. Um, right. Well, especially now that Google's um, algorithms try makes you happy with your search. So it occurred to me the other day that just because my site was coming up first when I searched didn't actually mean it was coming up first for everyone. For everybody else, yeah. Because I go on it to update it, right? Mm -hmm. So it thinks, oh, you really like this site. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I know we're approaching the time requirement. John, do you have anything else? I know I know John is just foaming at the mouth because he is a technology nerd. I mean, yes. it's like... Well, so you guys, we can do this again sometime. Just let me know. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, my question that, you know, doesn't have to go on the podcast, but how does one get a job within your organization? <laughs> oh, well, uh, just, uh, we don't actually have a big organization. We just have, you know, we just sort of put projects together and pull people in, but hopefully we'll, you know, get to the point where we can. Uh, awesome. But it's, to me, it's exciting to just be, I mean, I feel like a pioneer because things are, are changing so fast. So it's, it's really exciting. 
Dr. And so Roberts. are you guys. I mean, <laughs> you're pioneers too. It's actually, that's one of the things that, you know, the, the technology allow, allows us to do this. And it kind of took off where we didn't even expect it, you know, which is crazy. You can't even predict what's going to happen. Right. Which is uh, one of the big qualities of a network, right? Yeah, it is. All right. Well, um, I know we've taken up a lot of time. So no, I'm we'll having a go. good time. So oh, it's good. good. Well, thanks again so much. This was awesome. Uh, well, I'm happy to do it. And like I said, if you know if there's something you want to talk about at another date, I'm you know I'm always around. So let me, just let me know. All right, great. Thank you so much. Okay, take care, you guys. Yeah, thanks right. again. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, at least. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to tune in next week. We got another awesome guest coming on. Also. Again, we mentioned it before, but contact us, you know, either through our website, which is smartpeoplepodcast.com, through the contact us at our website, or just do it on Twitter or Facebook. We want to hear who do you want to listen to? What do you think of the podcast? Any new ideas? I mean, this can be a listener run thing if you wanted to. So it could be really interesting. Yeah. And while you guys are over at our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, don't forget to check out the Amazon widget at the bottom left corner of the page. Remember, everything that you purchase through Amazon, we get a small commission that helps us keep this show going. And we greatly appreciate everybody that's been doing it already, but get more people to do it. Awesome. Thanks again, everybody. Catch you next week. And remember, at Smart People Pod. All right, Smart People Potters, that sound means it's time to announce the winners from last week's book giveaway. On last week's episode, we interviewed Dr. Tom Woods, the author of Rollback, Repealing Big Government Before the Coming Fiscal Collapse. And this week, our winners come from Twitter, and they are rdockend and sholey 17 Congratulations, guys. We'll be sending out your book shortly.